Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This is another replay episode from four years ago, back in 2019, with Nicola Sturgeon, who then was the indomitable First Minister of Scotland. Boris Johnson was Prime Minister of the UK. This was recorded at the Edinburgh Festival, so recorded in Scotland with the First Minister. It's amazing listening to these with hindsight and all the things that unfold since. So there's a number of things here that may, well, may make you laugh anyway, but um, may, knowing what you know now... Um, perhaps have taken on a more darkly comic uh, element. So I, I've got some guests lined up for some new episodes. So they are coming. Um, I just need to record them. So I'm just sorting out some dates and times with some fantastic guests. Because you want to come back um, after all this, obviously, with really good guests. I mean, I don't think there's a single guest in the history of the show that hasn't um, been a, a, a good guest in one way or the other. But, of course, um, I will come back um ASAP with fresh episodes. So they are being planned and booked, so they are on the way. Um, enough waffle from me. Thank you for all your tweets, by the way, um, uh, in reaction to you know me getting out of hospital and everything. Uh, it's very, very kind of you. And um, yes, fresh episodes on the way. No more waffle. I, I mean, I just said I wasn't going to waffle, and here I am waffling still, so this must end. Um, enjoy from 2019, Nicola Sturgeon. And today's guest is a very special guest indeed, someone I've been trying to get on the show for many, many years and I'm delighted to introduce today. Someone who has shot to prominence in a relatively short amount of time in the last few years and become one of the dominant figures, not just in Scotland in the UK, but also in global politics. And he's now one of the most respected party leaders we have in the UK. She's led the SNP for a number of years and has also been, and currently still is, First Minister of Scotland. Please give a rousing welcome to Nicola Sturgeon. Sounds like a fairly neutral crowd. I, I, I don't know. I thought they could have been a bit more supportive when I came in there, you know. I, I mean, I suppose in, in terms of where you go in Scotland and at rallies, that's probably a, a relatively muted response compared to what you used to. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, clap a bit more as we go through this session, please. <laughs> so recently, um, you, had, uh, you, had, uh, you had Boris Johnson with you in, in Edinburgh. I saw, I saw the footage of, of Boris arriving at Butte House. He got quite a... Big responses. Well. Yeah, he did. Yeah, <laughs> not the first Englishman to be booed during the festival, but uh, he, uh, he he certainly got a, a reception as he as he approached the steps. I mean, I'll ask you about what he was like behind closed doors, but the, the footage of you welcoming on the steps was brilliant. And there seems to be, if if I've read it correctly, he after you've had the the photograph on the steps, then tries to get you to go first, and he's messing about, and it looks like you just say, "Oh, come on, Boris." <laughs> Are those words the ones? Well, I've started saying to people uh, who ask me about this: if you want to know what I was really thinking in that moment, 
just watch the Janie Godley voiceover. <laughs> because that captures it to a T. Yeah, I mean, seriously, you know, these things happen very quickly. And so, uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure what was in my mind, but I was conscious of that sort of, you know, in you go, dear, and me thinking, nah, I don't think we'll do it that way. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. Because that's a, that was a, an attempt at power play on his part, wasn't it? One of the I, old tricks is what they call the doorstep challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think he would probably say he was just being chivalrous because you know what a gentleman <laughs> he is. Um, <laughs> But I read it in that, you know, second that I definitely read. And I, you know, I'm a woman in politics. I've been a woman in politics. I've been a woman all my life. I've been a woman in politics <laughs> for a long, long time. So you kind of get, you know, quite uh, used to identifying and spotting these tactics. So I, I think I, I read it in that instance as him wanting to do that power play thing and, and deciding just as quickly that he wasn't going to do that on the steps of my house. <laughs> so... <laughs> How difficult is it when you've got to have photos alongside and appear professional with and, and be gracious to people that you really disagree with, and particularly someone who is, you know, behaves in a particular way and behaves in a particular way towards women? Do you think, I'm definitely not going to smile for this one, or do you think, I'll do a half smile? It's bloody hard to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I was conscious of absolutely wanting to be professional and and to be civil and to be polite because my mother brought me up to be all of these things. I don't always manage it, but I try uh, very hard. Uh, but I was also conscious of the fact that I was welcoming, in inverted commas, somebody to Butte House that the vast, vast majority of people that I serve would never have wanted to see as Prime Minister in a million years. So I, I wasn't you know, wanting to stand there full of the joys of spring with a big cheesy grin on my face. And... So I, I decided to, you know, have that sort of almost poker face, just do the job, professional and all the rest of it. And then it all kind of went, I, I wouldn't say it went wrong, but he had, I mean, I've said this before, he had the most enormous entourage with him. I mean, much, much bigger. <laughs> the meeting never, even inside, got that intimate. Let me just be, be clear. Um, but much bigger than... Theresa May used to have or, or David Cameron suddenly you know behind him uh, up the path and about to come up the steps must have been about 30 folk uh, who they all were I have no idea and the first one up the steps who I think came up the steps before he was meant to and kind of got in the way of the photograph was the new Secretary of State for Scotland and again I'm not saying anything I haven't said before and I, I stress again I'm not trying to be rude to him I'm not you know but in that instant I didn't immediately recognise him. So it was a kind of, you know, has somebody just been passing by, popped off the tour bus that often stops outside and thought they'd have a look inside? But anyway, I quickly realised That person would probably be more qualified. Very, I mean, you may say that. I obviously shouldn't comment. But yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree. So how was he behind closed doors, Boris? Was he still putting on the kind of Boris Johnson act or was he a bit more professional? Um... No, I think the Boris Johnson act that you see in public is pretty much how he was in private, and I think that is for him what passes as professional, uh, to, be, to be frank about it. Um, there's a lot... I mean, I'm, I'm a politician. We can all do the, the bluster and, you know, talk in big-picture terms and try to avoid the detail, but there was a lot of that, you know, everything will be fine on the night, don't worry, it'll all work itself out. Um, you know, he does that thing, and we... You know, you're going to immediately know the kind of 
guy, and I, I say guy deliberately because it tends to be a certain type of man who does this more than, than women generally do, but he talks, you know, what in my view, and I appreciate I'm not unbiased here, complete nonsense, but <laughs> does it with that air of absolute confidence and conviction and swagger that uh, mansplaining may be one word for it, but y- you know what it's like. And, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really like sort of getting prodded on the detail. And, and everything's a big debate. And again, I'm a politician. I love a good debate uh, as much as anybody does and can hold my own in a good debate. But he tries to turn in everything, a kind of serious discussion about what happens in a no-deal Brexit into just a, a debating point. Um, so, you know, that's my... Other than that, I thought he was great. <laughs> but did he... I'm sure he would, you know, be very polite and kind about me as well if he was sitting here, so just to even it up. <laughs> but did he, did he try any small talk? Was there any, were there any, you know, sort of friendly chat? Did he ask you about your family or anything like that first? Um, no, I don't think he inquired after my family that I can recall. Um, we, which again, I, I'm not sure this was... Uh, his plan or his people's plan, but we ended up having quite a lengthy part of the meeting, just the two of us alone in, in the room. Um, Dangerous. I think his, his people were, I think, getting increasingly nervous outside the, the door of the room. Um, we, we had a bit of uh, banter. I'd, I'd only really, we'd only really met each other properly once previously to that, uh, which was the day after the 2015 general election. And we were both at the, the VE Day commemorations and we had sort of walked from the service back to wherever we were going along Horse Guards Parade and we had a brief chat then, so we reminisced a little bit about that. But um, there, there wasn't a lot of small talk in the sense of, you know, how's your family doing? I'm not sure he would have appreciated questions about <laughs> how his family is doing, but that's another matter. Exactly. Together. I don't think you can tell us precisely who his family is. <laughs> Part of the problem, um, but was he? Was he? You know, was he sat there going, oh, I, "Come on, Nicola, you know, we need to work together in order to." I come that on, is you know. exactly <laughs> what he was like. I come on, you know, this great, great alliance. By the way, uh, come on, uh, you, uh, great. I'm sure there are ways that we can uh, work to. That is fantastic. Together. <laughs> Was there, was there a lot of that? Was there, uh, there was. That, that's basically what it was. <laughs> in a nutshell. I could stand in for him maybe in future. Yeah. Future. yeah. If, you ever, if you ever need for any TV debates, to have someone right. come. In. Well, I challenged him to t- because we, we obviously got on to the question of Scottish independence and whether Scotland should have a choice over its future rather than have this Brexit future imposed upon us. Um, and you know, he was trying to debate the. You know, the, as he would see it, the downsides of Sc- Scottish independence and debating the substance. So, you know, I was saying to him, well, okay, if you want to have a debate on the substance of independence, we shouldn't really be doing it in Butte House. Let's do it outside and let people decide the question, because obviously he was talking about not wanting there to be a, a Scottish independence referendum. Um, and later on, when we uh, went into the meeting proper and other people joined, I, I suggested that we might do it in a television debate, uh, at which point one of his advisors said, I think we should be going, <laughs> Because he would be, in terms of facing an opponent in, the TV, in a TV debate, you, you've done a few, who has been the most formidable person you've faced? Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, I, 
they're all different. I mean, I'm trying to think. I've done so many. I've probably done more leaders' debates than any other leader in the, the country. And, and you know, they've, some have been general elections, some have been independence debates. And, you know, every opponent poses their own challenges. Um, and sometimes the format of these debates are not necessarily in a sort of head-on head. So if I think about the 2015 general election uh, debates, I thought from the perspective, and you often have a different perspective to people watching, I thought David Cameron performed better in those debates than many people might have expected him to. But that was, you know, there was how many of us, you know, six or seven of us. So you, you don't really lock horns on a, a one-to-one basis. Um, you know, Nigel Farage in these debates was, was difficult, but not because I thought he was a brilliant debater. It's just he was being so offensive in some yes. of what he was saying about immigrants and... Um, and Leanne Wood, of course, who was the leader of Plaid Cymru, really very effectively called him out on that. So he's been the one that I've probably least enjoyed being on a platform with just because I find his views so utterly abhorrent. In terms of the prep for them then, is, is the strategy to just get through it without making a mistake and just get your messages out and your audience will hear them? Or is it to occasionally, if you spot a weakness, to, to kind of exploit that? Or is it... Is the, is the number one aim just to get through without mistake? Oh, no, I, I don't think... Well, I never go into um, a debate in that purely defensive mode of just get through it without yeah. making a mistake. Um, because in my experience, if, if you do that, actually, you're more likely to make a mistake because you're constantly thinking about, you know, not making a mistake. Uh, but also, it's just a waste of an opportunity. You should be there to put forward a positive case and to put forward, uh, you know, your points in as engaging and compelling a way as you possibly can and to, and to win converts. To, you know, if, if you go into a debate, your, your purpose should be to persuade somebody of your case that wasn't previously persuaded and, and hopefully to persuade lots of people of that. So I think that is always how I try to go into to debates. And yes, exploit a weakness if you see it. There's, there's a, an instinct that kicks in, even if, if you were to go in thinking, I'm just going to go in, play my own game, you know, try not to make mistakes and get out in one piece. Certainly the way I am, the minute you're in there and the adrenaline starts to flow, then you're kind of pouncing on every, every weakness uh, that there is. And any good debater in, in turn will be trying to do that to you. Because you're in, a, you're in a, a fascinating position where you are in government in Scotland, but you're in opposition to the UK government in Westminster. So you kind of, that presents, that has opportunities, that also has risks. When you're debating purely in a Scottish context, you're there to be shot yeah. at. You're the, you're the authority figure that people are trying to topple. Is that, do you prefer that when you go in kind of as the favourite? Or do you prefer to go in as an underdog? I think they're two very different experiences. So, in the 20, again, going back to the 2015 election, when I took part in the UK leaders' debates, um, I was very much there as a, a challenger, you know, somebody in opposition. And it's just a different, it's a different approach you have to take. In the Scottish debates in the same election, it was an entirely different experience because I was, you know, the first minister with a, a record that other parties wanted to attack. I, I'm not sure I, I like being... Uh, I like, again, this is maybe just part of the kind of political animal. I, I like being the one that people are trying to have a go at because it means you're the one that's kind of in pole position. Um, and so being, the, uh, that's far better than being, you know, an also ran that nobody gives a chance to. So I, I like that. But then, you know, there's also, of course, something, you know, quite good in a debate when you're the one having the go yeah. as well. So it's good. I mean, it's, it's a kind of... 
it brings its challenges, it brings a lot of opportunities, but that kind of dual role that I and the SNP are in is it's fascinating because you, you do kind of see things from both sides of, of that fence. You've led your party and the country in an incredible period for the party and for the country, going from six or seven MPs in, in Westminster on the back of the referendum to then having 56. And even with the losses at the last election still being the dominant political force in Scotland in both parliaments, that turbocharged level of popularity, you still enjoy a, an incredible lead over everyone else. That can bring risks uh, for parties. You know, New Labour saw it and, and other parties have seen it. Uh, how vigilant are you on, on not becoming complacent? Obsessed, <laughs> um, as any of my colleagues will tell you. I mean, I, you know, I grew up politically in the west of Scotland, um, you know, have sort of uh, forged my own political career in Glasgow. So I have witnessed at close quarters the decline. I mean, when I was of Labour. When I was much younger in politics, before the SNP you know, did anything of the scale we've now done, you know, the joke in Glasgow, or where I grew up in Ayrshire, used to be that you weighed the Labour vote at an election rather than counting it. So I, I've seen Labour go from way up there, a seemingly impregnable position, to where they are right now in single figures in elections and in an existential crisis. And I'm, I'm, I don't see that Lightly, so it's kind of hard, hardwired into me. It's in my DNA to avoid making the mistakes that I saw them make uh, at, at every turn. Now, of course, when you're in government, you can't, you, you don't get everything right. You make mistakes. Any party in government, you disappoint people. There are things that some people want you to do that you you can't do. There are other things that you do do that some people don't want you to do. So there is a an element there that you you, you simply can't avoid. But staying engaged with people you know, constantly assessing and reassessing what we're doing, it is absolutely vital that we do that. Um, that success, of course, I mean, one, if you look at the 2017 election, it was a tough, I think it was a tough election for, for everybody because of the circumstances of it. It was a tough election for the SNP. But because we had that unprecedented uh, and, and probably unrepeatable kind of record historic performance in 2015, an election result in 2017 that was way, way um, beyond anything we'd, with that one exception, had ever achieved before, was somehow seen as, as a, a failure and as a sort of, you know, slip down. Um, so you can, you can become a victim of your own success. But I'd still far rather be in this position than yes. in the position of any of the other parties in Scotland. <laughs> Did you, sometimes when you get a high watermark, like, like New Labour had in 1997, it means that a load of people that you put into unwinnable seats get elected. Yeah. And that can bring its own problems. So in 2015, did you think, oh, fucking hell, they've gone and elected him. <laughs> I, I stuck him on that island thinking he'd never get in and now he's going to be on the fucking panel. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is probably the safest answer at this point. <laughs> I mean, is it, you're in a really tricky position because you, you obviously lead the party overall, you lead the party in, uh, the, the, in Holyrood, but then there's a, there's, a, there's a huge chunk of the party in terms of uh, you know, its constitutional weight in Westminster and the, and the national coverage that that gets. How do you manage the relationship with the Westminster Parliamentary Party? I mean, do you sometimes watch them on telly and go, oh, what are they doing? No, Don't I, sit there. I mean, genuinely, I, I have been full of pride watching my colleagues in Westminster over the last three years, um, you know, in really difficult circumstances when, you know, very often 
uh, more often than not, you switch on the television and watch them and they appear like the only grown-ups in the House of Commons. So I'm so proud of the job that they do. It's not an easy job for them, trying to bring sense to the madness that is uh, prevailing down there. Um, I've got a very, uh, very close relationship with Ian Blackford, the leader of our group there, which is essential because we talk... Uh, all the time about their tactics and the approach they're taking so that you know there's that joined up approach I had the same relationship with Angus Robertson when he did that job inevitably two groups and two different parliaments you'll have issues that cause you know a bit of tension that we have to work through quite carefully but overall um, it works really really well because and that's important because one of the other things that I learned from Labour is that one of, not by no means the biggest or the only uh, reason for Labour's decline, but certainly a factor was the complete disjointed and really acrimonious relationship between their MSPs in Scotland and their Scottish MPs at Westminster. Um, and it, it looked to me that Labour really, you know, the party that claims, I think sometimes overclaims to have single-handedly single delivered a Scottish Parliament, but they never really came to terms with it. Their MPs always seemed to be really jealous of the attention that their MSPs would get. So that always looked to be a problem for them. And again, it's one of these things that we work very hard at trying to make uh, run smoothly. As I say, at sometimes there'll be you know, moments where it maybe doesn't go entirely to plan, but I think overall it works pretty well. I mean, is, is there a divide then between the MPs and the MSPs? Do the MPs think they're more important or do the MSPs I, think they're... You know, when you're at a party conference, do you have people going, well, ah, set in Westminster Park? No. <laughs> they, they, they'd probably get pretty short shrift at an SNP conference <laughs> with that attitude. Um, no. You know, and, and I, again, I think, and I'm saying this as somebody looking in from the outside on Labour, but it seemed to me that was very much the case with Labour. Westminster MPs felt that they were superior and who were these pesky MSPs sort of getting onto their turf. No, there, there's not. I mean, in the SNP, and this is not to downplay the role of my colleagues, and this also makes us different, I think, to other parties, most aspiring young up-and-coming politicians in the SNP would see the Scottish Parliament as their preference in terms of where to build yes. their political career, not Westminster. Um, but that doesn't manifest itself in a sense of superiority of MSPs over MPs. I think generally speaking, and you know, again, I, I generalise, there's a sense that we're all, we're all in it for the same reason. We're all working together and we all have our parts to play. Do you ever worry with, particularly sending 56 uh, uh, SNP politicians to, to Westminster, that some of them would actually quite like it? Um, Nicola, sorry, the drinks are cheap. <laughs> Got those lovely green benches. London's fucking great! Can I say, and take this in the spirit that it is intended, I think you I think I know what's going on. I think your Boris accent is much better than your Scottish one. <laughs> oh, I can do a few. I can do the kind of uh, Glasgow needy. You're not eat the Glasgow needy, you didn't you eat? I don't think any of your MPs sound like that, do they? Um, well, the Honourable Jane, oh me. <laughs> There's a, a genuinely think, and you, you may say, um, I, you notice I'm trying to move on from these dreadful <laughs> Glasgow accents. I, I think for anybody, and you know, I, I absolutely include myself in this, as, as a politician in whatever parliament you happen to be in, that pull of the kind of institution and, and, and the pull into a, a political bubble that yeah. can if you're not careful, divorce you from the people that you're there to represent. That is a, a danger 
I think, for any politician, whether they're in Westminster. Is it a bigger danger at Westminster? I think people are away from home more often than is the case in the Scottish Parliament. There are more bars, obviously, to get into trouble in. Um, And there's obviously the history and the the institution that um, is much younger and less developed in Scotland. So it maybe is a bigger risk, but... I'm fairly confident that for SNP MPs, there's enough of a corrective uh, in, in the party and in constituencies up here to make sure that that's not too much of a danger. Is there any part of you, and maybe any part of them, that uh, maybe not Westminster specifically, but if Scotland were to become independent mm. uh, at any point... When? Sorry, is the correct Well, <laughs> If or when, depending on your view. Um, I mean, if kind of includes when, doesn't it? But would there be any part of you, because when I interviewed John Swinney last year, he said on the morning that uh, he woke up to find out that the UK voted to leave the EU, he said he, said he, he felt a sense of loss that he hadn't expected to feel. Yeah. And he understood in that moment how no vote, voters yeah. would have felt waking up the morning that Scotland had uh, voted itself independent. Is there, would you feel a sense of loss about leaving the UK? And are there any things specifically that you would miss about being a United Kingdom? Um, I'll come on directly to that point, but just to repeat what John said, I, I remember saying this in a, an SNP conference speech not long after the Brexit vote, that for possibly the first time at a level that was emotional as opposed to intellectual, the, the Brexit vote gave me an insight into how somebody against Scottish independence would feel if, when Scotland votes for that. And I think that kind of insight is, is valuable and it's important because I'm a great believer, although some of our political opponents would probably uh, sort of take issue with this, we should try harder to understand each other and try to find as much common ground as, as we possibly can. Um, on your question, the things I... People often ask me, do I, do I feel British? And, and of course there are, there's a, a, an element of Britishness to my identity. Um, and it comes from a shared history in some respects, family ties... You know, cultural ties. And Last those night things... at the proms, the Union Jack, Rangers. Wow. <laughs> I was more thinking of my family and <laughs> round about Sunderland and all the rest. But, but you know, so the things I value about that, uh, I don't think we lose by Scotland becoming independent. You know, the, the thing is, an independent Scotland is still part of the British Isles. Uh, you know, we, we don't geographically kind of sail away into the North Sea somewhere. We're still part of that family of nations of the British Isles. I, you know, as First Minister, uh, attend meetings of the British Irish Council. And right now, around that table, you've got two independent nations, the UK and the Republic of Ireland, the three devolved administrations, well, Northern Ireland's not represented just now, uh, Wales, Scotland, and hopefully soon Northern Ireland again, the Crown Dependencies. If Scotland becomes independent, we are still around that table with all the same players, we just go from being one of the devolved governments to another independent government. But those relationships still exist and the rest of the British Isles are always going to be our closest friends and neighbours. So these, the things that I value, I don't think we lose by Scotland becoming independent. We just That relationship becomes one of equals as opposed to one as it is right now where we can be dragged out of Europe against our will and have all sorts of policies we don't agree with imposed upon us. So a family of nations, I mean, some families are deeply dysfunctional, aren't they? So would Scotland go independent? Is that like like the teenager sort of moving away for a bit and then 
But, or is that a divorce? I mean, how would it affect well, the family I think, unit? I mean, I, I do think that is, there's sometimes a bit of a danger in trying to use these kind of analogies to explain something that is, is much more complex, but I, I will do it because I've, I've often in the past talked about, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons why support for Scottish independence is so much higher amongst young people than it is amongst the older age groups. Because I think if you're talking to a young person, the whole notion of independence, personal independence, makes sense. You know, the idea that you don't leave home when you get to a certain age, make your own way in the world, still love your family, still go and visit them, still have lots of ties that hold you together, but you make your own decisions and you take responsibility for your own life. And, and actually, that's not a bad analogy for Scottish independence. We're not severing all the ties between Scotland and the rest of the UK or the wider British Isles. We're just saying we want to be responsible for the direction we take and we still want to cooperate and work together. And I would extend that into an independent Scotland continuing to want to work with other European nations as part of the European Union. I'm, I'm described as a nationalist. I've sometimes got some problems with that word because of the global connotations of it. But first and foremost, I'm an internationalist. I want Scotland to be independent, to give us more uh, opportunity to chart our own course domestically, but also so that Scotland can cooperate and play a bigger role with other countries on the world stage. It's fundamentally an outward-looking internationalist perspective. In terms of the N-word, the nationalist word, not the other one, uh, obviously... Uh, it, you, you, I think I'd read this right, that you'd said one, you know, you, if you could rebrand the party, perhaps you would have done, but that the SNP is the too name, So the word, and it's not, my, my problems with this word is nothing to do with the SNP or what we stand for. I am 100% comfortable with what my party stands for. It's just in, in an, an international context, and I think for some people in the UK as well, when you say the word nationalist, you don't think of a, a civic, progressive uh, outward-looking, open movement like the Scottish independence movement, you think of the far-right, racist, uh, insular kind of movements we see in other parts of the world, and, and we couldn't be more different to that. And a lot of the, the regimes or parties that are called nationalist today, they're, they're, not, they're not in countries that are striving to be independent, because often they're in countries that are already independent. They're based on some kind of racial exceptionalism or superiority, often very illiberal, oppressive of minorities. The Scottish independence movement is its not even at the other end of the spectrum to that. It's on a completely different spectrum altogether. So I think some people, when they hear me described as a nationalist, who maybe are not immersed in Scottish politics every day, think, oh, does that mean she's the same as X, Y or Z and all of these rather unsavoury regimes around the world? I just wonder if you could, you know, if you could rebrand it, what would you call it? Would you go for like one of those modern words like consignia or, <laughs> or would you go, you know, you could have the Scottish International Party, but that'd be SIP. I don't know. I mean, people, you know, do like to drink. Well, so that could, <laughs> that could help. I mean, Scottish Independence Party would also be SIP. Um, you know, Scottish Progressive. I, I, I've not re I don't want you to get the sense that I spend a lot of time thinking about this. You know, 90 years on, I'm not sure it would be the most sensible thing to do to <laughs> rename the SNP. Um, so if I was back at the start and we had the opportunity to do it all over again, maybe given it another name, but, you know, instead, I guess it gives me the opportunity, as I've just done, to explain what we stand for as a, a party and as a movement and, you know, take the time to make clear. I mean, the SNP today is, I, and I, I think I can say this without fear of, well, 
people will always contradict me, but without fear of justifiable contradiction, we're the most pro-immigration party in the UK. Now, that's not what you would expect in a, a sort of global sense of a nationalist party. So, you know, as I say, my nationalism, if, you, if we call it that for a moment, is rooted in a desire to make the country that I live in, you know, as good as it can be to allow everybody who lives here, I don't care where you come from, if you want to live in Scotland and consider yourself Scottish, that is fine by me and I want more people to come and live in Scotland and consider themselves Scottish and also to see that Scotland has a role and a contribution to make to the wider world. Do you worry though sometimes that you know, your nationalism may be a, a civic nationalism as you describe it, but that whenever you're running a campaign about identity mm. and about independence that you will inspire some people that actually do of hold course. those views and there are members of the Scottish independence movement that are racist and are insular. Yeah. I mean, there's the guy down on the Royal Mile with a banner saying, England, get out of Scotland. Yeah. Um, Which, do you uh, sometimes worry that actually you are perhaps inspiring people that you do disagree with, look, that nationalism is like that? Yeah, of course, any party, any movement, regardless of what they stand for, will attract people that you, you don't want. They will see some or choose to see something uh, in what you stand for that is is not. Um, so yes, I, you know, the, the banner you talk about, that, the person with that banner uh, does not speak for the SNP, um, has no, that kind of sentiment, has no place in the Scotland I want us to be and think we are. Um, and I think you can't, you can't get to a situation in any party where you can say with certainty we'll never attract the wrong kind of person. But you can be absolutely vehement and resolute about calling it out and saying very clearly to people we don't want if that's your opinion you don't belong in this party and we don't want you and people who put up banners like that I don't want them in the SNP I'm sorry if that offends them but yeah. I don't want them I mean Jackie Kerr our Macker national poet uh, made some comments uh, a couple of days ago I think she was kind of misquoted and taken out of context but at the heart of what she was saying is that for all the progress we've made, Scotland still has a lot of work to do on tackling racism and equality. And she got a lot of criticism online for people who just would not accept that there was anything that you know, was wrong with Scotland or whatever. And frankly, we, we should never be complacent about racism or bigotry. Uh, we've always got to make sure that we are living up to the ideals we have of Scotland. And, and the most important thing for somebody in my position is not to pretend that my party will never attract anybody of those kind of opinions, but to be absolutely clear that we will never make the SNP a comfortable or welcoming place for them. I mean, do you think, obviously, in 2014, there was all this talk of cyber nats and, uh, you know, the, the tone of politics online and people getting called red Tories and everything, and it was a difficult experience for a lot of people. Do you think in a, in a future referendum, the yes movement would be more... Uh, rigorous about calling that stuff out and, and not allowing it? Well, look, I, I think we are. I mean, I, I call things out when I see them, when I think it's appropriate to do that. I do think there is a sort of unrealistic expectation given social media and how people operate online that any leader of any party can police that, you know, completely. I, you know, I'm not responsible for everything people say uh, on Twitter, uh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> But it cuts both ways. I mean, I, some of, I try not to look at it, uh, but some of the abuse I get on Twitter would literally make your hair curl. Uh, yes. I mean, it's horrible, misogynist, um, you know, really filthy, disgusting stuff. And, and women across all parties get that. So we should always call that out. I think there is a much bigger debate, and it's not confined to Scotland, about 
uh, how social media is distorting our political debate and not in a good way. And that I don't have all of the answers to that, but I think that is a big challenge, not just for the SNP or the independence movement or just for Scotland. You know, that's a big challenge for everybody. Do you ever, I mean, <clears throat> there are different levels of abuse, aren't there? I mean, there's the really nasty, aggressive stuff that you get. Do you ever see some of the stuff, the stuff that always gets to me is the sarcastic stuff. I don't mind if people are going to say they're going to kill me. I'm sorry it. I sent that to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it's ones where they go, oh, he thinks he's dead funny and he's not. I think, that's what annoys me more than people saying they're going to kill me. Right. I think, well, actually, I am funny sometimes. You I mean, do have a very got... good Boris Johnson impression. Well, exactly. Well, there's that, exactly. That. But do, do, are there ever any of the more snarkier comments that get to you? I, I genuinely don't spend any time looking at that stuff because, you know, okay, occasionally you'll see things and you'll say, oh, that's a bit, you know, much or don't like that. But... But it would drive you bonkers. I mean, particularly in a position like mine, you know, where there's just so much comes... I mean, my Twitter feed moves at a hell of a, a rate. If I was to stop and actually go into some of that, I would, it would drive you crazy yes, it and would, yeah. it would not be healthy. And I think one of the things, again, particularly in a position of political leadership, you've got to try and... You've got to try and keep a sense of equilibrium. And if you start, and that's one of the big dangers of social media, that it, it doesn't just distort our political debate. If you're not careful, it will distort your own priorities. It will distort the judgments you make about how you spend your time, about what you choose to yes. prioritise, the positions you take. And, and, you know, the risks of that, I think, are obvious. So maintaining a sense of distance from that and a sense of healthy equilibrium, I think, is very, very important. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We talked about the risks of, of movements attracting you know, darker, sinister elements that you, you don't agree with. Um, on that note, what's your relationship like with Jeremy Corbyn? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I genuinely... So I've, I've not... <laughs> trying desperately hard not to... Um, I, I, I've not had that many meetings with Jeremy Corbyn, so... Uh, Ian Blackford, uh, you know, leads most of the kind of day-to-day -day interaction with other leaders at, at Westminster. Um, you know, he does that public service on behalf of all of us. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've had maybe a handful of meetings with, with Jeremy Corbyn. I find, you know, it's a bit hit or miss as to how much of the detail he's prepared to kind of engage with. Um, I am still not convinced that he actually wants the UK not to leave the European Union. I think, you know, he is, and he would deny this, my strong suspicion is, I, I don't know, he says he voted Remain, but I suspect he would quite like to see the UK just out of the European Union. So he's been half-hearted as a polite way of saying it about trying to find a, a way out of this mess. I, I think there has been an appalling lack of leadership on his part on Brexit. Um, and actually, if we do crash out on the 31st of October, um, without a deal in particular, he will, he will share a significant 
you know, chunk of the responsibility for that, in my view, for, for just failing to get off the fence. And yeah, of course, it's, it's not an easy one for Labour. They, you know, many of their constituencies voted leave. Uh, others voted remain. It's a difficult one, but sometimes in these big issues in politics, you just have to decide what side of it you're on. And apart from it being, I think, a, a, a woeful lack of leadership, you know, the results of the European elections for Labour, UK-wide, but particularly in Scotland, show the price you pay for equivocating and, and trying to keep both sides happy. This is, you know, it's a crisis the UK is facing. It's a, you know, one of the, the biggest decisions and, and issues uh, for this generation, you know, decide what blinking side of it you're on. Take a position, for goodness sake. Um, and I think it's been very frustrating that he's not been able to do that. Well, it's not just uh, the UK's membership of the EU that people sense that he might equivocate on. It's also Scotland's membership of the UK and that people say historically, actually, someone that ideologically would support independence and would, certainly wouldn't stand in the way of a, another referendum. So he might turn out to be an ally. Well... You know, I mean, let's separate two issues. There's whether or not you support Scottish independence. Now, I have to say, I've listened to, or not that closely, but I've heard Jeremy Corbyn over many, many years support independence movements in almost every other country in the world, except Scotland. So it kind of, you know, but anyway, that's for him to... But you can oppose independence. It's a perfectly... I mean, there'll be people in here who oppose Scottish independence. That's a perfectly legitimate position to take. What is not legitimate, in my view, is to say that you will stand in the way of the people of Scotland being the ones to take that decision. And I think, I think he's expressed the right position on this, which is to say, you know, I don't support independence. I don't want there to be another independence referendum, and I will argue against it. But it's for the Scottish people and the Scottish Parliament to decide that issue. And for the life of me, I, I don't understand why Scottish Labour don't take that position as well. They can continue to argue against independence. They can continue to say we would prefer it if there wasn't a referendum. But the idea that Westminster gets to block Scotland's right to self-determination, it's a position that even Margaret Thatcher didn't argue. And to find Scottish Labour in particular arguing it today just bamboozles me. But you could see why, even if people uh, were, you know, there's the democratic argument, but you could see why people might say, look, we've had a, an independence referendum, two general elections, a referendum on leaving the European Union. This is a volatile, divisive time. Now isn't the time. Well, when is the time? You know, after untold damage has been done to our economy, our society, our, our place in the world, you know, when opportunities have been stripped away from the next generation. Um, you know, democracy, you cannot put democracy in, in aspect, you know, people have right to change their minds, particularly when circumstances change uh, so dramatically. And if, if we cast our minds back to 2014, you know, almost everything the No campaign said or promised or predicted, it's all been proven wrong. We, you know, we had to vote no to uh, protect our place in the European Union. And now we're being dragged out against our will. We had to vote no to protect our pensions. And now we find we actually, because we're not independent, might have to work till we're 75 under this government. So, you know, all of these promises that were made have, have been shown to be false. Now, Scotland has a right, if it wants to, to decide, well, actually, we voted no five years ago, but circumstances have changed and we want to, to do something differently. The fundamental thing is it's for the people of Scotland to decide. It's not for me to decide. It's not for Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson to decide. It's for the Scottish people to decide. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, facts put forward in a referendum, I mean, both yes and no made claims during the referendum that have not 
perhaps panned out the way uh, they would have liked. Uh, oil revenues haven't been where the Yes campaign would have liked them to be. There's a £30 billion shortfall, and that would have been the first few years of an independent Possibly Scotland. Check your figures on that, but anyway, we won't, we won't quibble. <laughs> Well, that's, that's what, that's yeah. I read that in the Herald and the Scotsman. As I say, I think you should probably check the figures. <laughs> whether, well, whether it's 30 billion or whether it's a little bit more or less, mm. it certainly isn't where the Yes campaign said it would be. Look, there is, there is a, a difference here. Okay, I, you know, in, in the 2014 referendum, we published the white paper, the six, 700 page uh, prospectus. Now, people disagreed with that in whole or in part or whatever, but that, that was there. That was uh, available for people to scrutinise, to pore over. It helped inform the debate. There were many other things that helped inform the debate. The one thing I don't think it is possible to argue is that the electorate, and this you know, is, is, is an argument that can be used against me, it's not possible to argue that the electorate that took that decision in 2014 was uninformed. You know, the Scottish electorate at that point was probably the most informed anywhere on the planet. You know, it was... It was par for the course to be having detailed discussions in pubs and clubs and street corners and hairdressers and shops about you know, currency, financial regulation, the lender of last resort. People knew a lot of detail about that. Yes, the oil revenue, the, the oil price crashed. That wasn't something we were aware was going to happen in advance of that referendum. It it's happened. a volatile commodity, though. I mean, you it's could a volatile have seen... commodity, but nobody... Um, you know, I remember... Um, David Cameron coming up to visit Aberdeen and talking about, you know, the, if, we kept, if we'd voted no and continue to have UK investment into North Sea oil and gas, then this bonanza that we were going to have. So we put forward uh, a lot of information, a lot of facts and figures, our best judgments about things. The future is uncertain. That will be the case in whatever decision you're taking. But the contrast between the, the detail of the debate in 2014 and the complete information vacuum in 2016 in the Brexit vote could not be starker. And, and what was different is you also had people, I think, knowingly saying things that at the moment they were saying them, they knew was not true. Boris Johnson telling people that Turkey was about to yes. be admitted to EU membership. Now, he knew that wasn't true. Um, and, you know, I think that is reprehensible that people uh, effectively had, in so many issues, the wool pulled over their eyes. But do you worry, obviously Brexit represents a huge opportunity because no one can really argue that it's not a material change in the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Um, however, what it also shows is leaving unions can be economically damaging, can be politically and socially damaging. And what you have is a group of people in 2014 that said, well, if Scotland goes independent, RBS and others will leave and this causes uh, economic upheaval, who were called Project Fear... But when they said about the EU, it came true. And in a way, aren't you reinforcing people like David Cameron and George Osborne in their wisdom and saying, actually, it turns out when they do threaten that there's economic damage after these referendums, it does happen. Look, I, I think a lot of this comes down to how you plan and prepare for change. I mean, we live in... No country has ever left the European Union. You know, I would make the point that somewhere in the region of 50 countries since the end of the Second World War have become independent from the UK. This is not an unprecedented uh, thing to, to do. It's also down to, to how well you prepare. So some of what I've just said about the, you know, the information in the campaign, the Scottish government had done a massive amount of preparation for what would have happened literally at the minute the result was declared 
onwards if there had been a yes vote. We had an entire unit sitting in St Andrew's House in Edinburgh ready to kick into action. I oppose Brexit. I oppose Brexit on a, a principled and, and very fundamental level. But actually, a lot of the mess that we're in now is not down to Brexit per se. Mm. It's down to the complete lack of any honesty in advance of the decision, any you know, frankness with people about the trade-offs and the compromises that would be required and a complete lack of planning for what would have happened had the vote turned out to be leave, which, which it did. And so you don't have to do these things that way, which is why I think those who say, oh, well, Brexit just proves how difficult it is uh, to be independent, I think make a mistake in their analysis. But, but do you worry that, it, that, that for some people that is a conclusion they will draw? Well, my job as a politician and as a passionate believer that Scotland should be independent, not because our future becomes a land of milk and honey or that everything in the garden will always be rosy, we'll make mistakes, we'll face challenges as an independent country, but I believe it's better to be in control of that than, than not. It's my job to persuade people of, of the fact that that is, is not the case, that properly managed and properly planned for constitutional change doesn't have to replicate uh, the mess that Brexit is. I mean, you can plan for stuff, and that's definitely a difference, but that doesn't stop the stuff from happening. You know, if, you, if Scotland wants to go independent, if people look at the way that the UK leaving the EU is going to affect our economy, people might say, well, actually, Scotland leaving the UK is going to be far more profound. We trade more with the rest of the UK, we share a currency. If Brexit's a disaster, the conclusion about independence might be more catastrophic in people's minds. Well, look, I, I mean... I don't want to stop trading with the rest of the UK and there is no reason why an independent Scotland wouldn't continue to trade with the rest of the UK. Um, but I also think it's important, you know, the, the European single market is eight times the size of the UK market. Um, we must keep uh, our place in that because the potential for export growth, for growth in trade is, is huge there. So, but for me, it's not an either or, you know, it's not the case that an independent Scotland won't trade with the rest of the UK and it's not the case that the rest of the UK won't want to continue to trade with Scotland. You take RBS uh, and what you know, they said in 2014. Uh, they were at pains to say any shift would be a brass plate shift. There would be no moving of, of jobs or, or operations from Scotland. So, you know, sometimes we live in a world where yeah, and again, social media is partly to blame for this. People get impatient with the detail. They just want the big picture and the grand slogans. But I'm still a believer in the art of persuading people and persuading people on the substance and the detail. That brought uh, the Yes campaign within a hair's breadth of winning independence in 2014. And I believe with everything I've got that that same approach uh, will actually win it when we come to choose again. But the, the prospectus has changed now, hasn't it? In, in 2014, you said that Scotland would keep the pound, and now SNP members have voted that actually in independent Scotland, at, you know, at the point of choosing the six tests, you would, you would have a new currency. That would represent trade friction with the rest of the UK. In the event of a no-deal Brexit, as we're seeing with Ireland, you might have a hard border between Scotland and England. I mean, they would represent profound challenges to Scottish business trading well, elsewhere. Which is why... Um, so it's not me or anything the Scottish... Uh, independence movement is doing that's threatening borders or, or interruptions to trade. That is coming from not just Brexit, but this obsession with leaving the single market and the customs union, which is why I will continue to argue for the UK to take a different course here and for whatever needs to be done to protect open borders in, in Ireland to, to, to continue. Um, so, 
you know, but we, we have to, we can't always be the prisoner of the decisions that are, are being taken elsewhere if they are doing uh, real damage as Brexit threatens to do uh, to Scotland. Uh, of course the prospectus has changed, circumstances change. It would be wrong not to continue to update the prospectus. Yes, we now uh, take a different view on currency, partly because, it's not because I thought or I think that the, the position we took on currency in 2014 was the wrong one. As it happens, uh, if we'd voted yes, I believe that the position of the UK government would have changed. They would suddenly have realised that the benefits of a currency union might actually suit them uh, quite well. But you had a situation where they kind of decided they wanted a veto on that. So we respond to circumstances. What's not credible, and this is where you know, I think it's such a huge benefit to have such an informed electorate in Scotland. You know, if you listen to the no campaign, we'd be the only country in the world that was incapable of having any currency. You know, we, we can't keep the pound, we can't have an independent currency. You know, it's ridiculous. Countries choose the currency option that best suit their economic needs. Uh, that's why the tests around the, the position that we have in terms of moving to a separate Scottish currency are so important because it's about when it's right for our economy and um, we would move there because that's what countries do. The, the world is full of independent countries that are in currency unions with others, other independent currencies that have their own uh, currencies. The idea that Scotland is somehow incapable of making the right decision for our needs is ridiculous in my view. I mean, in terms of the test on the new currency, there are six tests. I mean, we all really know there's just one test, isn't there? Is this a Scottish currency that London taxi drivers will finally accept? <laughs> well, if we ever get to that stage, it will be not just taxi drivers yeah, <laughs> as well. Yes, you have hit upon one of the sore points and frustrations of every single Scot that travels south of the border. <laughs> I mean, do you, you talk about coming within a hair's breadth of victory in the 2014 referendum campaign, and it was incredible from, the, from where Yes started to where it got to, and then obviously the, the volatility in the polls towards polling day, where it really looked like Scotland was going to vote. I mean, when you're in the middle of a campaign, it can be so hard to assess where you think the public are. But were there any points where you really thought you'd done it? Oh, yes, I did. Um, I travelled right across the country for you know, weeks, months, actually, in advance of polling day um, and got that sense of building momentum. I, I did town hall meetings in you know, literally every corner of the country every night for what seemed like years. Um, and I could feel it there. You know, it started with... Because you know, these were packed full, you know, hundreds of people every night and at the start it was you, I got the sense that we're all converts already just there to kind of get a bit of the you know the sort of uh, the boost from all getting together but it then started to move to lots of undecideds and you could just tell people were really engaging and there was that movement which we saw in the polls uh, but in the last few days of in fact, I think the last two or three days I, I kind of came home to Glasgow and did the the last bit of the campaign on home turf and that convinced me that we were winning. Of course, we did win in Glasgow. And I guess I, I made the mistake of assuming that what was happening in Glasgow would have been happening all over the country. So I, in the last couple of days of the campaign, was absolutely convinced that we were going to win. And how hard was it to take? It was heartbreaking. Um, you know, you, you throw everything into it. Um, you know, people are not involved in these campaigns. It's maybe kind of hard to understand. Some people in here will have been involved. But you, you put your, particularly one of this nature, you put your heart and your soul into it and, and then it's over and you haven't quite done it and there's just that sense of crushing disappointment, lost opportunity. And then, you know, the, the few days after that, Alex Salmond resigned and, and I was sort of, you know, 
facing the prospect uh, and opportunity of becoming SNP leader. So it was a whirlwind, but you know the emotions. It was a very emotional, emotional time. I think that I might start that... crying if you make me talk about it. <laughs> Did you cry on the night? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And what gave you comfort? Um, well, strangely enough, I mean, being surrounded by people who were, you know, as disappointed, you get a lot of Other comfort. crying people. We were all crying <laughs> on each other's shoulders. Um, but actually, the next morning, um, very quickly over the course of that Friday, something really quite remarkable started to happen. And you'll you recall this, the SNP's membership started to creep up. And I remember, it must have been on the Friday afternoon, being told... We've got 5,000 new members. And then a few hours later, it was 10,000. And it just, it just kept... And, and it became obvious that there was... We, we had not won the referendum, but something had been let out of that bottle that was never, ever going to go back in. And there was this movement and desire for change that was going to continue. And that gave me a lot of comfort and a lot of motivation to pick myself up and get on with it. I interviewed Kezia Dugdown on the stage last week, who I think is here, and I asked her for a question for you. I sprung it on her, she wasn't given any uh, warning, but uh, the question she would like me to ask you was, a, was about taxation and why you haven't been more radical in increasing taxes to generate revenue. Well, you see, I think we have. Um, we've, we've used the income... We have very limited income tax powers, and, and when you've got one tax power, you cannot keep ratcheting up the same tax. I wish we had a broader basket of taxes to make uh, different judgments. But we've, we've reformed the tax system, so we've, we've reduced tax a bit for people on the very lowest incomes. We now have the starter rate of tax in Scotland, and we've put tax up for people at the upper uh, levels. The system is more progressive, and it raises more revenue. But it doesn't... Kezia's uh, proposal in the 2016 election was to increase... Uh, put a penny on the, the basic rate of tax. Now, that would have actually put an added burden on some people at the bottom end who were already really struggling. We chose not to do that. We chose to protect people at the bottom and put tax up at the top. And I think we've done the right thing. And in the process of doing it, actually, we've kind of bust this you know, political um, convention that's existed for all of my lifetime that it's impossible for a party to raise income tax mm. and not get really punished uh, at the, the ballot box. We've shown that's not true. If you make the case and, and show people how you're using the revenue, people can be persuaded of that. That's a really good point. If, what, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a political environment where Brexit and independence are the kind of two key things that are really driving people to you, you could get away with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> no, do you know what? I don't think we, we, we actually probably have more scrutiny uh, of the day-to-day -day workings of government in Scotland than is the case elsewhere in the UK right now. But we are getting on with all sorts of stuff. You know, Brexit has paralysed UK governance. You know, we are... I mean, I'll just give you some of the, 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 the things we're doing that are off the top of my head. We're setting up a new national investment bank right now. Uh, we're in the process of doubling childcare. Uh, we've got a, a major programme of education reform. We've set up a new social security agency in the last uh, year or so. Uh, we're about to introduce a new benefit for uh, low-income families with children. Uh, we've increased uh, the, the payments carers get. You know, we've got a busy, progressive, uh, forward-looking domestic policy programme uh, so we are getting on with stuff, even although that lot down south are obsessed with nothing other than Brexit. <laughs> do you, um, you mentioned education there. It was something that you said you would ultimately mm. be judged on. And education standards 
I imagine by your own admission, probably not where you would like them to be. Do you think you could be more radical in terms of policy on education? Would you look at things like academies, for instance? I, I think the Scottish education system is fundamentally uh, sound. I think Scottish education is good. We uh, have been, I've been very open uh, in saying that I want to see standards rise and particularly the gulf that exists between the richest and the poorest kids closing. Uh, we've done a number of things, uh, not least investing a lot more money in areas uh, and on children living in deprivation. And we are starting to see the fruits of that. Um, you know, in a whole range of different measures, um, standards are improving and we're seeing, whether in school education or one of the measures that was often and is often used to judges in access to higher education, that attainment gap starting to narrow. Of course, you can always be... You know, people can always say, be more radical, do more of this, and you should always listen to that. But I don't, when I speak to uh, many, and I'm not just talking teachers or people who would be seen to be in the educational establishment in England, uh, I'm talking about parents or, or people who've got you know, different experiences. I don't get very many people saying to me, you should really copy what England is doing. Uh, just finally, books are a big part of your life. It's mm. something that you, you tweet about a lot. Uh, and one of your favourite books, if I'm right, in recent years has been The Power which is a, a book about um, how teenage girls discover they have basically electricity and within them. what about them. electrifying, uh, and, and electrocuting, elect sorry, men. And they're able to electrocute men. So which three politicians <laughs> would you electrocute? I wouldn't electrocute anybody. Okay, uh, maybe, not a full, maybe not a full electrocution, just a sort of mild shock. A harmless, you know, if Amnesty said it's absolutely fine. <laughs> if anything, we'd encourage it. Well, I, I mean, I, it, it's tempting to say I would try to shock Boris Johnson out of his uh, kind of almost criminal complacency on a no-deal Brexit, but I'd... And where on the body? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to damage his leisure pursuits. Uh, <laughs> and someone's already done his hair. Like that. Um, but you know what? In all seriousness, I don't think it would make any difference because I, I don't think with Boris it is a kind of, you know, complacency. I actually think he wants for ideological reasons to take the UK off that cliff edge and he doesn't really care about the damage that's been done. So not Boris, so who, who would you? Oh, who come would you? on, I'm not... Just a quick zap, just I'm a little... If anything, they'd like it. <laughs> OK, maybe not politicians, anyone. I, I, I don't really like thinking about, you know, inflicting violence or pain on people. It's a shame, because I do. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I, I don't like talking about it publicly. <laughs> Well, maybe people... I mean, are there any suggestions for... Yeah, let me crowdsource this. That's a good idea. Who do you think I should... Who would you like to see... Mildly electrocute. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I, OK, I'll go with that. I just want to say, by the way, I do not agree that that would be a good idea. It's and it's been an honour to meet you. It's Natalie. only Scottish accents you can't do. <laughs> Natalie, it's been an honour to meet you. You're my, you're my favourite English politician. You're very good. <laughs> Um, well, look forward to Nicola Sturgeon meeting Donald Trump with a cattle prod at some point <laughs> in the near future. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming, but please, a huge thank you to Nicola Sturgeon. Well, there you go. I think when you look back on any leader, um, especially when you've interviewed them at the time, and especially when you've interviewed them effectively in their imperial phase, uh, when at the time there was really no immediate or it didn't feel like medium-term threat uh, to her leadership uh, all the things that happened since uh, and I think of some of the other interviews I think of the interview with Ian Blackford which was I think last year because then there were some rumours obviously he'd been 
deposed by Stephen Flynn. So you could sort of see that things were changing within the parliamentary SNP in Westminster, um, which gave a sense of an undercurrent. But of course, um, we knew the police investigation was on the way, but you never know how these things are going to unfold. So there were more rumblings then, but certainly back in 2019 there were none. So it's incredible listening back to that. Um, and, and reflecting on everything that's happened since. But as I promised at the start, fresh episodes on the way. I hope you're enjoying this replay series. I am loving going back uh, through through the vaults and picking out some of these episodes. But fresh ones must happen. Some are booked. And I will try and get a fresh one out for the next episode. But if not, it will be the one after that. I promise that is a pledge that I will not U-turn on. Um, well, thanks for downloading this. As always, if you can leave a five-star written review, tell all your friends and family about it. And uh, I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.